All right, everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I am Brandon Noto, back here with Brian Bowling. And uh, I got to be honest with you, this is not going to be a full episode with a complex case. Um, To be honest, we both got a little busy. And we were not able to put together something really elaborate for you. But we're going to try something else out. And if it works out well, this might be something we could uh, continue to do in the future. I'm going to give you a little mini episode, a little little morsel. Uh, And rather than go through a a specific case, we're just going to talk around some issues. Uh, Talk kind of more in general how we handle certain situations, certain common issues that come up in the ICU, uh, and just what our practice is. This is not going to be an evidence-based kind of thing. Uh, a lot of these are areas where there isn't really a clear answer. Um, there's probably some data out there, but nothing that's really been convincing, or else we would all know what to do. Uh, but you still got to make a decision, so we can talk about how we handle them. So the first thing uh, I think we can talk about is stress ulcer prophylaxis. Most people understand that you know patients who are critically ill kind of patients we see in the ICU uh, have decreased blood flow to their gut, and that places them at risk for developing gastritis and ulcers, which can be very serious. Um, But, you know, the evidence on this has kind of waxed and waned, and I mean, frankly, we don't see all that many stress ulcers anymore these days. Brian, how do you handle this? Which of your patients are you giving stress ulcer prophylaxis? What are you selecting? When are you stopping it? Yeah, so this is one, I got to admit, I do a lot of voodoo medicine with when it comes to stress ulcer prophylaxis um everybody that's on the vent gets one obviously right so every every mechanically ventilated patient is going to be on stress ulcer prophylaxis my go-to to start with is typically famotidine um, and unless there's a specific reason to put someone on a ppi like they take a ppi at home or they have other pathology uh, simply for prophylaxis that's that's sort of my go-to um Typically started IV. Uh, we'll sometimes, if I'm really being good and thinking about it, we'll switch them to PO when PO is appropriate. Um, and then sometimes, so to me, I think the tricky part is, like you said, when to stop it. Um, if the patient gets extubated, do you stop the, the famotidine or do you keep it going? And um, I, I got to be honest, I rely a lot on other people to help me with that. Mostly my pharmacist and also sometimes the primary service. Uh, so I work in an in a open ICU where I co-manage patients with a surgical service typically. Uh, and the surgeons typically have their own feelings uh, on this. And it, it's not one that I feel like is a battle worth fighting. If I feel like we can stop it and they don't want to stop it, uh, I'm usually just like, Okay, we'll keep it going. Um, now, sometimes I will put up a little bit of a fight if they want to put someone on a big gun PPI uh, for no good reason because we know that that's going to increase your risk for complications like C. diff colitis. Um, but, again, sometimes even that's not a battle worth fighting. Yeah, I, I, I think it's very... Um institution-dependent, maybe even more than provider-dependent. It's one of those things that a certain place will tend to to do one thing or another, especially with the choice of drug. Like my last job, we mostly did um, uh, famotidine. Here, we mostly do uh, pantoprazole, you know, PPI. Um, I agree. I mean, I think there's a little bit more data of, of some harm from PPIs. But, I mean, overall, 
I mean, these are pretty safe drugs. Like you said, I, it's not like something I would spend more than a couple seconds thinking about. Um, yeah, definitely patients on the vent generally, you know, unless maybe they're chronically vented, then I, I guess I'm not sure. Um, anyone who's, I mean, I think it's kind of a gestalt, anyone who's real sick, you know, you're resuscitating them. Certainly right. if they're on like, you know, a lot of pressure, you know, patients with GI bleeds are, are you know, clear risks for it, of course. Um, and, you know, if they're, if they're sicker, do I prefer a PPI? I mean, maybe, yeah, certainly if they have a GI bleed, I mean, I think that goes without saying, but. And then I, uh, I, I guess I'll tend to get it off when I don't feel like they meet that indication anymore. You know, you, you can find lists of, you know, guidelines on indications for stress ulcer prophylaxis. It's usually mechanical ventilation, you know, maybe high-dose steroids, high-dose vasopressors, things like that. But a lot of it ends up being kind of a judgment call, you know, what's high-dose and so on. Uh, a lot of the time, by the time people are... Uh, ready to get out of the ICU, it's about the time when they're ready to get off their stress ulcer prophylaxis, I think. The unclear ones are the ones that are kind of become more chronically critically ill, and they've been around for like weeks, and they're like traked or something, or they're on like midodrine or something, and then you're like, is this still an indication? And I don't really know. I do think it's true that, you know, the baseline incidence of this stuff has gotten low enough that the, the benefit is, is kind of slimmer and slimmer. There clearly are still patients who, who develop, like, gastritis. I don't know if it's all preventable. Um, but it's definitely one of those topics that I, 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 I don't care all that much. So if somebody else wants to do something, go for it. Yeah, and I think I would agree with that. And and so my bias towards this is I started out in the ICU world with cardiac surgery, and our sort of standard was patients came out of the operating room, they got uh, IV famotidine BID until we started doing PO and uh, PO meds in general, and we switched it to PO famotidine, and they stayed on it until they left the ICU. Um, and so I sort of that's sort of how I do it. And like you said, I just I don't know that I really care enough to, um, to learn a different way. Uh, that sounds bad, but, um, every now and then I think, Oh, I should, I should dig into the evidence and be evidence-based about this. And then I sort of think, oh, I don't know. Does it really matter that much? Yeah. Like, uh, you should probably occasionally give it a little bit of thought, but probably not every time you order it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think we do a better job uh, overall with early enteral feedings in patients in the ICU these days. And I think that decreases your risk for ulcer formation. So I think as long as we're doing a pretty good job with that, then I don't know that we need to be super concerned about stress ulcer prophylaxis. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of that is the bias of the world I live in, right? I live in a surgical and neurosurgical environment uh, where most of our patients tend not to stay uh, very long. They tend not to be super chronically ill. Uh, they get better and they go to the floor, they get better, they go to rehab. Um, they're not like a lot of patients like you see maybe in the MICU, uh, who are there for prolonged periods of time, who are chronic vent players and stuff like that. Yeah. And I wonder if that uh, affects it because a lot of people will talk about the nutrition thing, but you know, at least from the evidence that I've looked at, I, I think it's not totally clear that, um, whether the patient is receiving nutrition or not necessarily makes a big difference. Now, that may be because, again, the baseline risk is low enough that it's hard to really show clear signal from anything. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, I think that's one of those things that uh, 
and people will kind of cite to support whatever it is they feel like doing, but it's not like it's totally slam dunk. You know, if you're, uh, if you're eating, then you're good. And if you're not, then maybe you need something. But... Yeah. All right. On the topic of stress, let's talk stress dose steroids. Um, this one has been pretty controversial in recent years. Um, there's it, been a number of you know new trials and things, but nevertheless, we all seem to still be doing something different. Which of your patients are you giving stress dose steroids, and um, what are you using, and what dose? So I th- yeah, so this is another one that uh, I think sometimes we def- we sort of drift into the voodoo territory. Um, a lot of times, I think we will sort of be asking ourselves. Should we should we just give steroids? Um, you know, and a lot of times it's it's patients who are in shock that's refractory to vasopressors. So uh, so say a septic shock patient who we're going up and up on the norepi, maybe we've added vasopressin. Um, at that point, that's when I would probably start saying, should we consider giving some steroids um, to this patient? And I gotta say, it's another thing that I don't have a whole lot of evidence um, to support in my practice. Uh, it tends to be that, right? That we're we're not making much headway with other things. Should we do some steroids? Um, we tend to do hydrocortisone, um, uh, like a hundred or fifty Q six um, IV. Um, I know we've done some methylpred um, and stuff as well in the past, but I think hydrocortisone is tends to be our go to. Yeah, I uh, I do the same. I usually do 50Q6, which is what I was taught. And I, I feel like it's what's been used in the majority of the studies. Um, some of the other people at my institution will do 100Q8, which is, you know, it's just slightly more a day. I mean, I don't think it matters. It just kind of weirds me out. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I will give it to patients who... Are, you know, on multiple doses of, of escalating pressors, but it's kind of a you know it when you see it sort of thing. I mean, even if someone is right. on maybe multiple pressors, but they're kind of in a stable spot, um, I don't. I wouldn't necessarily give them steroids. It's more the patient where you feel like you haven't uh, you haven't really got traction. You're you're giving them more and more drug, and you kind of feel like you're still slip sliding away because that to me kind of implies that there is another process here such as adrenal insufficiency um now i don't know maybe that means i wait too long in some patients i mean it's not necessarily supposed to be you know like they say no one dies in the icu without steroids um but i think that's usually who will give it to i think the less clear ones are the more subacute ones you know the ones again who've been around for some days or something maybe they're persistently hypotensive and you're like, could there be a little bit of, of relative adrenal insufficiency? Sometimes in those, I'll do an ACTH stim test. Um, I know I think there's clear guidelines that in that sick patient, you should just give it empirically because the testing takes too long and doesn't correlate well with the response. But in these kind of in the middle patients, I sometimes find that useful. Although in, I have in some of those cases just tried giving it as well and seeing if they respond. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you did any testing. I haven't done uh, any kind of... Uh, we, we will draw cortisol levels periodically on patients, um, but I don't tend to use them to guide steroid therapy, right? I, um, you know, I have a couple of attendings here. I feel like, if nothing else, they're just curious. Um, I tend to, like you said, empirically, if, if a patient is stable on multiple professors, that's one thing, but if we're not making headway or we're losing ground... 
Um, that's when I sort of, like you said, feel like, is there something else going on here? Um, I should clarify too. I think I said, uh, 50 or a hundred Q6. What I meant was 50 Q6 or a hundred Q8. Right. right. Um, uh, and we have, I have in the past done like a loading dose of a hundred and then 50 Q6 after that. Um, but typically we'll just do 50 Q6 or a hundred Q8. Yeah. I've seen that too. I don't know if that makes sense to me, like pharmacodynamically. I mean, I don't, do you have to load? steroids right. i don't know but yeah yeah again, I, I think it's voodoo sometimes those um those random cortisol levels I, I, that i was never sure about i mean i think if a stim test is not great that's e- like even worse if, if it's like crazy low or, or crazy high i mean that's, that's one thing i guess but usually the patients who you're not sure about they're not going to be it's going to be something less obvious <laughs> right um and then you you wean it off after pressures come off uh yeah so usually a couple of days of steroids um, and, and wean it off. I feel like if we do it for less than three days, we just stop. Um, we, don't, we don't really wean it off. Um, but but longer than longer than three or, three or four days, then we'll taper it. Yeah, if it's super, super short, I feel like you're just saying, well, we tried it and didn't work. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I usually taper, but I do a really a quick taper, just a few days. Um, okay, one more thing on the table today. Um, let's talk about PEEP. You have a hypoxic patient. They're on a lot of end support. They're on a high FiO2, maybe 100%. So you're, you're probably giving them a, a fair amount of PEEP, but you know how much? Um, there's like a million ways to figure this out. I think a, a common one is just to use some kind of a table, like the ARDSnet uh, table, uh, where you just titrate up the FiO2 and PEEP together. Um, but then there's all these kind of you know, tailored, customized ways to try to figure out what a patient actually needs. Um, how do you do it? So I guess it depends on the situation. Uh, I'm a big, I tell new folks and students all the time when they ask about event settings, my typical uh, sort of go-to response for event settings is whatever. And let's see what happens. Um, you know, I, all the time I tell the story of, you know, patients come in from the operating room or a patient gets into, we intubate a patient and the RT says, are you okay with these event settings? And I say, yeah, sure. And they'll say, I mean, you didn't even really look at them. And I go, yeah, but you're not an idiot. Right. So I feel like whatever you picked is reasonable and let's see what happens. We'll watch and get a gas in 30 minutes and kind of adjust from there. Uh, I think when you get into talking about like we're going up and up on settings. So you have a patient who's hypoxic, who's on the vent and is not doing well and you're, you're increasing. Um, I think when I start getting high numbers of FiO2, I start going up on the PEEP as well and, and sort of in almost like a reverse ARDS net, right? So if, I, if I'm on 60% FiO2 and five a PEEP, then my next move might, might go to A to PEEP. Uh, and then go up on the FI2 and then go up on the PEEP and just sort of titrate up in that back and forth. Um, I don't really do any kind of calculations. A lot of it is just see how people respond. Um, now, I do like the ARDSnet table for weaning. So once I get a patient uh, who's in ARDS stable on a certain amount, um, I will use the ARDSnet to wean. I will also use that table as a check sometimes. So let's say I've got a patient who um, I come in and they're requiring 100% FiO2 and they're on five a PEEP. I think, well, that's too much, right? So go up on the PEEP to, uh, you know, eight or 10 and come down on the FiO2. Pick Basically pick a place on the ARDSnet table uh, where you can kind of meet in the middle and see how they respond. 
and then use that sort of as a guide to tweak, right? I, let's say I come down to 80% and I go up to 10 a peep and that's not enough. Well, then maybe go up to 12 a peep. Is that not happening? Then come down, you know, and just sort of balance it out until you find a happy spot where they seem to like it um, using that table sort of as a guide. Does that make sense? Right, like there should be some reasonable ratio between them. Yeah. The patient on 100% and 5 or on like 20 a peep and like, 21%. Right. I mean, maybe, but you should, you know, look twice at that. <laughs> right. And I think, you know, PEEP especially is going to play a role too in, you know, if I've got a patient who's under resuscitated, um, sometimes I can't go up on PEEP because it increases their interthoracic pressure, uh, which causes their venous return to go down until I get them adequately resuscitated. I may need to be in that high FiO2, low PEEP zone um, until I get them to a point where they can tolerate more PEEP. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I um I try to get a little clever with it, but I I don't know that uh, it helps anybody. I just can't help myself. Um definitely you know for newer folks and when I'm teaching a lot of the time, I'll just suggest starting with something like a table. Um I think you know Scott Weingart suggested at one point we could just put FiO2 and PEEP on the same knob and simplify a lot of things. Yeah. Um <laughs> but um I I will try to get a sense for whether a patient is responding to the PEEP. You know, I, I guess I increasingly have this sense that there is an optimal PEEP for an individual patient based on, you know, whether they're easily recruitable or it's hard to or, or impossible to. Um, and I guess I'll get that from, you know, what their disease process is. You know, they have like a CHF patient, they have just cardiogenic pulmonary edema, they should be they should need some peep to pop open those wet alveoli, but it shouldn't probably need very much. You know, imaging, do they have a totally, you know, opacified chest, or is it pretty clear? Um, and then empirically, and I, I, I guess the two things that I am doing these days are, uh, you know, little, little peep trials. You know, increase the peep, see if you seem to get a response out of it, or vice versa. Um, and I, I'm kind of getting into driving pressure trials, which... Um, uh, it's something they used to do back at, at Hopkins. The uh, people talk about driving pressures these days. You know, as the delta between the like a plateau pressure and the peep, um, as as a lung protective parameter. You know, something you can watch along with the plateaus and other things. Try to keep low. But um, I, I, I actually I'm kind of skeptical about that because there's really not much evidence for. It. There's like a couple you know observational trials, but um, the idea of using it as a marker of, of compliance I find kind of interesting. So you know you. You go up on the PEEP, and then you look at their compliance or their plateau pressure, however you want to mark, measure it, and you see, does it, did it go up uh, or did it go down or stay the same? Because if it went down, even though you increased the airway pressure, that must mean you recruited some more lung. You know, you're putting the same volume or pressure into a larger space. Uh, or vice versa. You know, if it goes up a bunch, then, well, you didn't recruit anything. And, you know, if you didn't recruit anything, then probably your PEEP is not good. You know, you probably want to be on the least amount for what it takes to recruit the most lung you can, if that if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll go in and fool around with it and kind of see what seems to work. And often that takes a lot of, you know, changes over time, especially over time if they recruit and maybe they need less people to maintain that recruitment. Um, but truthfully, I don't know if that, uh, if that helps people other than in a very gross sense. I mean, you should at least have a... a basic ability to look at a patient and be like, this is not even in the right ballpark. You know, the patient who you come into and they're on like 20 a peep and their chest is like clear. 
and you could turn it down to like five and they're fine. You know, so, right. some point someone got ahead of themselves or vice versa. They're on like zero of peep. <laughs> you have like ARDS. Right. Um, everything else is, you know, probably just intellectual, um, keeping ourselves busy. But yeah, well, and, you know, I famously tell students when it, it comes to critical care and now please hear this with a grain of salt because uh, again i don't i don't work in the micu and the things may be different there but in in my world you know when i started in critical care i thought oh man critical care it's all this formula calculation and uh you know measurements and this and that and it turns out that you know 90 percent of what i do every day in the icu is just sort of making stuff up on the fly um, and seeing what happens. And now I don't mean making stuff up like, you know, some guy off the street would, right? I have a lot of years of doing this. So a lot of that is sort of, you know, just clinical gestalt, but you know, it's like I said with the, the vent settings, you know, are these vent settings? Okay. Yeah, I'm sure they're fine. Right. Let's see what happens and we'll sort of go from there. I don't necessarily get out and calculate, you know, what's the ideal patient's ideal body weight and how much, you know, mls per kilo of tidal volume do they need unless we're getting into those really tricky situations for everyday use i sort of just you know make up numbers right um yeah i do think there is some uh difference here in the population like you know a surgical versus a more medical one yeah you know most of these surgical patients if they're gonna have a lung problem it's gonna develop secondarily um whereas medical patients often the reason they're there is because of, of a you know pulmonary disease um, and I, th- I think they do tend to be uh, a little more elaborate up front. Not that you can't develop, you know, horrible ARDS and pneumonia and stuff after complicated surgical situations. But... Right. Yeah. And like I said, there's, there's going to be cases where those calculations are important. Um, but it, it's just sort of a, amazed me over the years of doing this at to how much we just sort of do things the way we do things. And it works out fine. Um, you know, not saying we should just throw evidence-based medicine out the window, but, um, I think sometimes patients are a lot more forgiving than we give them credit for. Right. The Zen approach. Yeah. All right. Well, that has been enlightening. Anything else you want to mention? No, I think that's good for right now. I I do like this format. I hope everybody else likes it. Yeah. Well, we should do more of them. Yeah, people uh, let us know, or if you have any particular thoughts or ideas for some short little uh, topics that we can throw together for you. You know, the sky's the limit. This is a case-based podcast, but I think for these little short ones, it can kind of be about anything as long as it's educational and not about, you know, my shoes. Um, So let us know. You can find us on Twitter or wherever. Uh, Otherwise, we'll see you in a couple weeks and probably have a new case for you. Thank you.